The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for what you need to know to make wise and profitable investments in your own financial future through investing in real estate. Today is question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. It is always real, uh, question and answer week on the last Wednesday of the month. Well, I say always, but... Almost always, 90, 99% of the time, it, this, this is our day to do your questions. So there's no like official topic today, just whatever you want to know about real estate investing uh, is on the table today, whether you are making your first investment or whether you are making your uh, 100th investment, whether you want to know about management or buying or selling or wholesaling or marketing, today's the day to ask those questions. There's a few ways you can go about doing that. One is to send us an email. We have a website called askvena.com. That's A-S-K-V-E-N-A.com. On that website, there is a little button that says, ask Vena a question. And if you punch that button, uh, it will take you to a questionnaire form and be sure to let us know where you're uh, uh, writing from, because sometimes the uh, answer the question depends on where you are in the world. You can also give us a call if you're listening in the greater Cincinnati area. Uh, you don't want to call that number because that's the fun drive number. You want to call 772-9658 if you are calling uh, from somewhere else out in Radio Land, if you are listening to us on the internet, for instance, uh, you can give us a call here in the studio toll free at 877-772-9658. So 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. In the uh, way of just sort of um, doing some things that we don't have we don't have time to do here on the radio. I mean, we really have like 42 minutes per show by the time we've listened to the traffic and the weather and the underwriters and so on. I'm going to be holding a series of no cost and no sales webinars starting on the second Tuesday in July uh, about passive investments. So we get a lot of uh, come ons. I'm sure all of you have seen a million advertisements for things like turnkey rentals and private loans and hedge funds and things like that, where you can put your money in and supposedly just get money back out without doing anything. And there are some real pros and cons to those things. And to really sit and be able to analyze them, you got to be able to see the numbers. And until George figures out how you can see numbers on the radio, we, we, we've covered this. We've covered this as a, as a topic many times. But you know, being able to to to, to you know show people a slide and say you know 
yeah, this might be your rent, but by the time you subtract the taxes and the insurance and the maintenance and the vacancies and the, then you're really down to this point. We um, could add a webcam. Let's 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 do that. I have a webcam on my computer. I can just push the button. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in any case, if you if you are interested, this is going to be a four week series. It's going to be on Tuesday nights again, beginning the second Tuesday in July. If you'd like to be registered for that series of webinars, which you'll simply watch on your computer, uh, send me an email. Uh, go to askvina.com, hit the Ask Vina a Question button, and then in the uh, response form, write interested in the passive investment seminars and give me your email and we will get you registered for that and you can uh, learn more about these things that you might have heard a lot of about but maybe you're not a hundred percent sure how to evaluate them for yourself again that's askvina.com uh, just on the response form just say interested in passive investment series and give me your email uh, question and answer week here on real life real estate we're going to go ahead and go to the phones and talk to Jonathan who's calling from Nashville Jonathan, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Thank you, Vanna. As a wholesaler, I know I'm supposed to contact my buyers list uh, every so often beyond just blasting them with deals. How often should I do that and why? Well, uh, that's, that's a good question, and it's not one that most people know to ask because the way most wholesalers treat their buyers list as is as this herd of people that I will contact when I have a deal for them and then they will respond to me. So folks out there who are wholesalers know that if you're collecting information about your buyers list, like, uh, you know, like uh, George here only wants properties in on the west side of town and he only wants four families and I only have like one of those every two years. I might only contact George once every two years and then when he gets an email from me, he doesn't remember who I am. He's like, but I haven't heard from you in two years. Why would I buy a property from you? I got better things to do with my time than deal with people who don't want to do business with me. So the the reason to keep in contact with your buyers list is for the good buyers out there that you just can't service all the time. They they just have, they have very specific needs. They have very specific areas. They uh, they're a good buyer for that property, but you're just not going to have that property all that often. And reminding them that you're out there, providing them with. Uh, with maybe some good information or some, some, you know, hey, hey, did you see these new numbers that came out from the Board of Realtors the other day about uh, what's going on in the Cincinnati housing market? And by the way, hope everything's going well and don't forget me when I send you a property. Uh, it's just sort of a um, recognizing that the buyers are the customers as much as the sellers are and they need, they need to be stroked from time to time. So that's the why. Now, the how often is an interesting question. Um, I've seen, I've seen companies that, like you sign up for their buyers list, and this not wholesale buyer, not wholesalers, but um, other sorts of companies that you sign up their buyers list or you sign up for a free report, and then they contact you every single day, every day. There's a there's another come on and another come on, and for me that's not useful because I start to ignore them after about day three. Uh, in fact, once a week is probably too often for this kind of contact. I, I would say maybe once a month would once once a month with something just helpful, and maybe you want to hit them once every six months with some super duper. Oh, hey, I found out how you can get two percent cash back at Home Depot. All you have to do is join this great group I belong to called Ren, and so so something something bigger like that every six months. Uh, I think would probably be about the right number. Thank you. You're very welcome, Jonathan. 
You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. We are talking today about whatever you want to talk about, because it's question and answer week. You can call us at 877-772-9658, or you can go to our response uh, website at askvina.com. Send it a question that way. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Today is question and answer day here on Real Life Real Estate. That would be your questions, my answers, although it would be awesome if we could turn that around. If I could be, all right, so I have a question, everybody, and then you all could answer my questions. We figure out a way to do that. Uh, you can ask any question that you may have about real estate investing at 877-772-9658 or by going to our website at askvina.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A dot com and clicking the button that says uh, ask me a question and then it'll give you a form to fill out and then we'll get it here via email. Uh, my assistant got a text in between the... Um, sessions here, uh, someone saying that they uh, couldn't get online to request to get on the list for the passive investment series, you can call it, you can call 877-772-9658. And when Pauline answers, just say, I don't have a question. I want to give you my email address for the passive investing series. And we can we can do it that way, too. Um, okay, so uh, we do have some questions that have come in, uh, both since the beginning of the show and really throughout the week. And by the way, uh, folks, you can you can always go to askvina.com if you wake up in the middle of the night. And you're like, oh my gosh, I have got to know the answer to this question. You can go to askvina.com and put it in there. And next time we have a question and answer week, uh, I will be sure to answer that. A question from Cornell in Lithia Springs, Georgia. I would like to know what you would feel are the top five things you would recommend to an investor uh, marketing-wise to find deals outside of the MLS. Uh, yeah, it's funny how we're all back to marketing for deals outside the MLS all of a sudden, because uh, in the big real estate bounce that we're having right now, MLS properties are tending to go pretty fast and for more money than uh, most of us want to pay if we're not giant hedge funds with zillions of dollars, and we're not uneducated investors jumping into the market the first for the first time because we heard it was hot. Uh, now, the real answer to your question, though, Cornell, has to do with what kind of property are you looking for? What What is it that you are uh, thinking of as the exit strategy for your property? Because certain kinds of marketing tend to turn up certain kinds of situations and other kinds of, of marketing tends to turn up other kinds of situations. Now, I'll give you an example. One of the most popular kinds of marketing that real estate investors do, and in fact, the very first thing that most people think of when they think marketing is they want to market to people in foreclosure, people who have had a suit filed against them, but they have not yet been foreclosed upon. That is obviously a, a group of people who kind of need to sell their house. It's you know, most people once they go into foreclosure officially, end up either doing a short sale or uh, having their property sold at the sheriff sale. So, good thought. However, that's mostly going to turn up properties that are over leveraged, which means that you need to know how to negotiate a short sale or how to at least figure out what you want to pay and hand the property off to someone who knows how to negotiate a short sale. It also, in my experience, turns up more properties that need work 
than properties that are in perfect shape. And some people, some investors are out there looking for properties that are in move-in condition right this second, like, like don't need anything done to them whatsoever. Now, you would think after 30 years in radio, George would learn to turn off the ringer on his cell phone when he went into the studio. Um, and I'm making fun of him because that same, exact same thing happened to me three weeks ago. <laughs> that was the sound you heard, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, if you said, well, what I'm looking for is is properties in really good shape that maybe I can buy subject to the existing loan, I would I would turn you to a completely different... I would never say go after pre-foreclosures because... Those are also going to tend to be months and months and months behind in their payments. And the owners, of course, are in financial trouble, which means a potential future bankruptcy, which could really blow your subject to out of the water. So in that case, I would say, well, go after expired listings. Go after um, uh, subdivisions that are between two and five years old, where the, the folks probably got a really good rate on their loan. And yeah, and they may want to move because a lot of people do like to get new houses every five years or so, like some people like to get new cars every five years or so. Uh, and I would say, you know, write to them or put bandit signs in their neighborhoods or something like that. So my very favorite type of marketing for myself, Cornell, is direct mail. The other big options, of course, being internet marketing. And also, uh, what we call uh, shotgun marketing, which is things like bandit signs and bus benches and car signs and things like that. And the reason I like direct mail is because I can really target my message and say to someone who uh, perhaps has uh, back taxes on their property one thing and say to someone who's inherited property a different thing. But after all of that, what I'm going to tell you is it depends on the kind of property and kind of situation you were looking for. I will say this though, Cornell, without without knowing more about your situation, any marketing you do is going to be better than nothing. Now, I'd like you to have like really great marketing, like really powerful sales letters and great lists. And, you know, I'd like you to mail your letters in a coconut so that they'd be sure to be opened. But if you mail it on the back of a grocery receipt, it's going to work better than not doing anything at all. So, uh, get out there and get marketing, Cornell, and uh, choose your choose your uh, subject and your way of marketing based on what you think your exit strategy might be. Oh, wow. A bunch of questions just came in on, uh, at ashvina.com. Uh, let's see. Tara in Wisconsin says, Vina, love the show. Thank you, Tara. Uh, in your opinion, what is the best way to determine what to offer for a house? Should I just look at what other investors have paid for similar houses in the area or stick to the formula ARV times 0.65 minus repairs minus wholesale fee or do both? Tara, that is a wonderful question. I wish more people thought it through like you have. What you do is you take the after repaired value of the property that you are looking at, multiply it by apparently in your area it's 0.65, in some areas it's 0.7, in some areas it's 0.6, subtract the actual repair costs for that property, and then if you're going to wholesale it, subtract your assignment fee, and that's your maximum allowable offer. You do need to cross-check that with what investors are paying for distressed properties in the area. Because I've had a couple of surprises in the last few years where I've done my formula and I come out with a number, let's say the number is uh, 28000 And then I look at what the distressed properties in the neighborhood are selling for, and the cheapest distressed property that's sold in the area in the last year has been for thirty eight. 
and I say, wow, so what's going on over here? Why are people paying more, a higher percentage of value in this area? And it might turn out that um, a new Montessori school went in or uh, there's a there's a great swim club that everybody wants to be in. There, there, there always turns out to be a reason for it. On the other hand, of course, I've had it happen the other way as well, where my numbers came up, came up at 50 and the highest sale price for a distressed property in the area was like $25,000. So uh, most of the time, the number that you come up with will be within range of what people are paying for distressed properties. But the reason you can't just use what they are paying for distressed properties is you cannot tell what kind of distress the property was in. A property that, that has foundation problems is going to sell for a different percentage of the after repaired value than one that just needs a new kitchen if that makes sense. So yes, do both. The biggest thing though is the after paired value times in your case 0.65. Thank you so much for your question, Tara. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. You can give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send us a question by going to askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It is question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means I'm depending on you to come up with interesting questions or even ones that you might not think are interesting, but you need to know the answer to. You can send them in via email, but the way you have to do that is to go to askvina.com and uh, enter it into the into the ask Vina a question form. While you're there, you can also check the box that says receive our complimentary weekly e-letter. And what will happen when you check that box is you'll get a reminder about the show coming up every single solitary Wednesday. So you can always hear it live and listen uh, to the guests as they are speaking and actually get to ask them questions as opposed to hearing it later on on the podcast and asking me questions that were really meant for the guests. Uh, you'll also get an article by or about our guests or their topics and other news and information about what's going on in the world of real estate. Again, that's at askvina.com, askvina.com, both to ask questions and to subscribe to our free weekly e-letter. In an example of questions that were actually meant for one of my guests, uh, John, who is from South Carolina, writes, can you recommend a strategy for resubmitting offer when you offers when you hear your offer has been rejected? And because that came in last Wednesday, just minutes before the end of the show, I'm going to guess that John had intended that question for last week's guest, uh, Brian Brockman, who is an REO agent who was talking about uh, HUD properties, who was talking about how to make offers on HUD properties. Now, John, with HUD specifically, there's actually a box you can check on the offer form that allows HUD to hold your offer as a uh, backup offer or as an offer if they um, do a price decrease later on down the road. And the first few times I made offers through HUD, I did not do that because I was like, well, I don't want them to you know, have this thing as a standing offer. And then I learned to go ahead and do it because if you check that box, even if your offer is rejected, every time there's a price decrease, you get an immediate email. And you can resubmit your offer or you can raise it a little bit if you are in a position to do that. On non-HUD REOs, uh, typically you want to remake that offer about every 30 days for as long as the property remains on the market. 
assuming that you went in close to your maximum allowable offer, you don't want to have the bank reject your offer and then jump right back in with an offer that's five or ten thousand dollars higher, unless of course five to ten thousand dollars higher higher is what you in actually intended to pay. So every twenty eight to thirty days is a good time frame for resubmitting offers. Uh, John also asked the question, do lenders use a formula for price reductions, time on the market, or what contract price they will accept? Uh, well, John, they might. If so, it's a complete mystery to the rest of us. I once did a, a massive personal research project on HUD sales and how often they dropped their price and at what point they um, how much they dropped it by when they did drop it and then what they uh, would eventually accept versus the asking price and what I came out with was a chart with dots all over it because although there 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 seems to be some period of time somewhere between like day 28 and day 38 where there might be a price drop there's no particular day versus when it comes on the market um, same thing with with bank owned properties you might see a price reduction every 30 days but uh, I had one a couple of weeks ago that literally dropped their price like three times in five days so I think they are looked at a little bit more on a case-by-case -case basis than we all might be imagining. We might be imagining there's some computer at Bank of America that spits out price drops every 30 days and tells the agents what to do. But uh, I, I think it's I think it's a little more monitored on a how many offers have we gotten on this property and what are they coming in at type of basis, perhaps. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate. It's question and answer week. 877-772-9658 is the number to call if you'd like to just talk to me here on the air. Uh, you can also go to askbina.com and send in your question that way. Question from Robert in Detroit. He says, can you give a number of questions to put to both title companies and attorneys when evaluating each for their ability to satisfy my, deal my needs as a wholesaler in closing deals? Again, what a great question, Robert, because what that tells me is you actually are out there trying it because it's occurred to you that eventually I'm going to need a closing agent and he should probably know upfront what I am doing. So uh, the, kind, the, the very first question that I ask a title agent, and I've, I've had to change title agents perhaps four or five times in the past 20 years for various reasons, is do you do investor closings? Because there are whole, there are large title companies in this country that simply will not do investor closings. Their their entire business model is around doing closings for banks with bank loans, or doing closing doing closings for real estate agents in more traditional sales. Get past that question, and the next question that I think that you should ask, being a wholesaler, is. Do you understand what a land trust is? And if they say no, which is entirely possible, a lot of attorneys and title companies don't know what a land trust is. The next question would be, are you willing to learn what a land trust is? Because I close a lot of my deals in land trusts. Uh, are you comfortable with uh, seller financing situations? Are you comfortable with uh, subject to situations? Um, these are all uh, questions that I would want to hear a yes to before I hired a title company. And then the final question uh, that I would like to see you ask them, well, okay, second final one would be, what do you charge? And then the final one would be, 
if I bring you a significant level of business, will there be a discount to that? Uh, most of the title companies that I have worked with over the years, um, they're doing single transactions, right? It's one buyer, one seller, and that one buyer and one seller don't come back again for five to seven years. Uh, I do 60 transactions a year with my title company. So do I expect a little bit of a break? Yes. Do I expect them to give that to me on day one when they don't know who I am? No, but I want them to be open to the idea of perhaps some sort of a, um, a reduced cost to myself or to my buyers, if that might be the case. So a wonderful question, Robert. Thank you for uh, your question and God bless you for investing in Detroit. Robert is improving Detroit one property at a time. A uh, question from Tom in Columbus, Ohio. Tom says, and as an investor who wins a HUD bid, how long before I would have to close? Tom, when you make the offer to HUD, uh, or rather when your real estate agent makes it online through HUDHomestore.com, you are asked the question, when will you close? When, when, you know, when is the proposed closing date? If you put in a date that's 90 days from now, it's unlikely to get accepted. If you put in a date 30 days from now, it's unlikely to be um, rejected on that basis. You know, to, uh, 30 days is fairly typical closing time. 45 days probably would not be frowned upon. Uh, some one of the one of the early mistakes that I made in making offers on bank-owned properties of various kinds was. I thought that the folks would be impressed if I said I could close in five days. And then a couple of listing agents straightened me out by saying, you do realize that no bank can get it together to close in five days, right? You should ask for 20 to 30 days because they cannot get their end of the closing together quickly enough to do it in five days. And that's not at all attractive to them, the idea that you might close in five days. Thanks for your question, Tom. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Today's question and answer week, and we are talking about whatever it is you want to talk about. You do have to send in your questions, though, and the way you do that is by going to askvina.com or by giving us a call. You can call us toll-free at 877-772-9658. Or you can uh, call us locally if you're here in the greater Cincinnati area just by dialing 772-9658. Question from Mark, who must be in Florida because the first line of his question is... I was listening to an interview that you did with Ron Legrand, and he mentioned that when you sell a house in Florida on land contract, it takes seven months to get the property back. I live in Florida also. Could you just have the buyer escrow a quitclaim deed so that if they ever stopped paying, you could record the deed and extinguish their interest? Also have it written that if this ever happens, you can evict them rather than foreclose. I evicted a land contract buyer about 10 years ago and had no problem. Uh, I'm planning on selling properties on land contract down here, but... This would be a problem if it took seven months to get them out. Either that or I need to move to Ohio. Well, Mark, without getting into the pros and cons of Florida versus Ohio, maybe you could just move into my house and I could just move into your house. How about that? We'll just we'll just trade and you can try the Ohio climate for a while. Because right now it's like 85 degrees outside and like 100% humidity. And in the winter, it's 
five degrees outside. And um, anyway, uh, this 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 question we need to do a show on selling properties on land contract because it is a hugely in demand strategy. There are a lot of people out there who would like to buy a house and who are qualified in the sense that they make enough money to buy a house and that they have a stable job history and that if the house needs repairs, they even have the skills to do that. And who at the same time can't qualify for traditional financing. So when you sell these folks a house on land contract, they are very happy about that because they get to go ahead and own a house and get all the tax benefits of owning a house and all the emotional benefits of owning a house without having to go to the bank. And yet, as you say, in most places, it is a land contract is treated much like a mortgage is, and it, it must be foreclosed upon. And in some areas, like, like in Texas, that's just not a big deal. It's like 21 days from the time you file the suit until the time you're at the courthouse steps in Texas. But in places like Florida and Ohio that are judicial foreclosure states, that can be an extremely long grinding process. Because that is the case, a lot of investors that I talk to say, well, I won't, I won't sell on land contract. I will only sell on lease option. Lease option isn't selling. Lease option is renting and gives the buyer the right to buy the house. And I can tell you from my own personal and very recent experience, that is not as attractive to these buyers as the idea of a land contract. So where's the, where's the balance here? Like I, I want... I want the maximum number of buyers. I want my buyers to be excited and devoted and put lots of money down and perform and and so on and so on. And at the same time, I don't want them to default and end up spending seven months foreclosing on them. The deed in lieu of foreclosure is not the answer. For one thing, typically you don't get a deed in lieu of foreclosure on a land contract. You get and you get a different kind of form that serves the same purpose that is a release of land contract. Secondly, that's never going to hold up in court. If you have one of those in your file and you go file it because the your buyer just like disappeared off the face of the earth, took all the stuff with him, you might be able to get away with it. But if the buyer's still living in the house and wants to continue to live in the house, your deed in lieu of foreclosure that you got in 2012 isn't going to extinguish his interest in 2015. If he makes any noise about it at all, if he goes to court, you're not going to win that one. Also, you may have problems, as we often do here in Hamilton County, Ohio, with recording what's called a stale document. So this thing's been, you know, they, they, they signed it. It's a for real deed in lieu of foreclosure or a release of land contract. But they signed it three years ago, and now you're taking it down to the courthouse trying to record it, and the courthouse says, no, we're not recording this because it's old. Now you might say, but they're supposed to record anything that has a notarial seal on it. Yep. That doesn't stop them from not recording it if they decide that it's old. So is is that something that people do and that has worked in cases where the buyer just has evaporated. 
Yes. Is it something that's going to, quote, protect you? No. Are you going to be able to put something in your land contract that says you can simply evict someone from the land contract? No, because folks aren't able to waive their rights to a legal process. If, if, if that was possible, every bank would have that in every mortgage. Your mortgage would say, if you don't pay, we can just evict you if, if that were legal, right? So the thing, though, that you have to weigh all this against and just just take this to heart as a general philosophy in real estate is what are the chances of what you are trying to protect yourself against i mean you can, you can you can do all this stuff and you can you can you can try every possible way and you can do stuff that you know isn't going to hold up in court just hoping that it will i don't know convince the buyer that they don't own the house anymore or you can look at it and say what are the what are the possibilities that someone's going to default, number one? And then if they do default, what are the chances they're going to make me foreclose on them? As opposed to maybe you could just go to your delinquent buyer and say, listen, clearly this isn't working out. And I really don't want to foreclose on you because that will ruin your credit. It will make it very, very difficult for you to buy houses for years to come. It will have a huge effect on your credit score. It may even make it tough for you to so much as rent a house if a landlord does a credit check on you. You've had a good run. It, it, it didn't, didn't work. So how about signing this piece of paper called a release of land contract and moving out this weekend and we'll call it good. We'll call it even. I won't go after you for the two months payments you didn't make me. I won't go after you for the rest of what you owe me let's just let's just you know shake hands and and make this go away now your alternative is i i will foreclose on you and i will chase you for every dime of what you owe me to the extent that the law allows and by the way no land contract law in your state because in ohio you can't go after somebody for what they owed you on a land contract but what you can do is you can charge them what market rent would have been going back to day one of their land contract so you want to do this the easy way, you want to do it the hard way. Most people will just sign it over to you, right? So I know there's a lot of moving parts in this decision, but the reality is in 20 years, and I've probably done 150 or more land contracts either for myself or others during those times, uh, I've never had to take a take a tenant, in a, or sorry, a buyer in a land contract to foreclosure. And here in Ohio, as you know, maybe you know, uh, for the first few years, there's the option of doing a forfeiture, which is sort of like an eviction. Very rare that I even have to do that. Because they just they just move when they realize they can't afford their house anymore. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. We have one more segment before the end of the show. We're going to take a quick break. While we're doing that, get on the phone with your questions at 877-772-9658 or go to askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Today's question and answer week. You can ask your questions by calling 877-772-9658. Or you can also uh, send an email, but you got to go to askvina.com and click the button that says Ask Vina a Question. A uh, big shout out to Adam in San Diego who 
just sent me an email requesting some photos, even though he listens to the show every week, and I assume he actually knows I'm on the air. Those will be coming to you, Adam, as soon as I get off the uh, program here. And uh, going back to our email questions, uh, we have one here from Peter who's in Cincinnati, who says, can you please explain the concept of wholesaling lease options? Uh, Yes, Peter, I can. Or if you go to our podcast and you'll look for a show called Ron LeGrand Lease Options. Uh, We did an entire program on this uh, topic about uh, February, March, maybe. And Ron goes into some depth on the topic of what kinds of properties you're looking for, uh, how you set up the deal, and uh, how the how the assignment works, and what deals not to go after in the wholesaling lease options arena. So I'm going to direct you to the podcast. Uh, by the way, folks, if you're looking for our podcast and you go into iTunes and type in Real Life Real Estate, you're going to find two different accounts for Real Life Real Estate. One has very few shows on it and I believe is under business. The other one that is the WMKV podcast has over a hundred programs on it now. Thanks to the fine folks here at WMKV. I occasionally will hear from a listener who says, I drove completely across the country with my iPhone plugged into my ear and listened to you for a hundred hours, which is a little creepy, but nice that, that folks are getting something out of it. Um, question from Tom. Are you using land trusts on all of your deals, residential and commercial? If so, who do you use as the trustee and beneficiary? Um, Tom, I do not do anything all of the time. <laughs> the, the deal uh, sort of tells me whether or not it's going to be in a land trust. And for those of you who are sort of going, what in the world is land trust and why would you do all your deals in it? There's another show in the podcast uh, all about land trusts and the legalities of that. So I'm going to direct you back to that if you don't know what a land trust is. Uh, a lot of my residential deals are done in land trusts, uh, partly for the simple privacy of it and partly for the use that land trusts offer you of being able to transfer the beneficial interest in the trust and thus effectively sell the property without selling the property or just selling a piece of personal property. Uh, Who do I use for a trustee? Well, if I told you that, that would sort of blow the whole privacy thing, right? Um, Over the years, I have used uh, an attorney because I like like so-and-so comma Esquire trustee a lot because, you know, folks tend to not want to mess around with a trustee who is a an attorney as well. Um, I have used the out-of-state trustee. Uh, Years ago, I had heard, oh, you want your trustee to be out-of-state because then if uh, anybody's ever trying to get information or file a nuisance lawsuit, they actually have to depose the trustee where he is to find out who the beneficiary is. The problem with that is you actually need your trustee to sign things beyond just the closing. You need them to sign sales agreements and deeds and mortgages and all that sort of thing. So the out-of-town trustee comes with a set of practical challenges that did not turn out to be worth overcoming. Uh, A lot of women will use relatives who don't have their same last name because the woman's using her married name. Uh, 
just about anybody except yourself whom you trust can be your trustee. Um, I've had I've, I've had students who traded trusteeships like I'll be your trustee, you be my trustee. And that way, uh, you know, we neither one of us is appearing in the public record on our own properties, but we're appearing in each other's properties. Now, the thing is, I'm going to say this again. I think I've, I've said it before recently. There's a reason they're called trustees. Trustees have control of the properties in your land trust. Now, yes, I know the trust agreement says that they will not do anything without your written direction. And in theory, anyone who is, say, accepting a deed from the trustee would ask for a thing from the beneficiary that said that the trustee had the written direction to do it. But I've heard at least two stories in the last six months of trustees who either emptied a trust bank account or who sold a property without the beneficiary knowing about it. So don't just pick your drinking buddy from college because he is willing to do it. It's got to be someone who does have high ethical standards for themselves and preferably is not, you know, like going bankrupt or something like that, or they might be tempted to steal your money. The beneficiary of the land trust completely depends on what entity you want to own that property. The trustee uh, in every case in my business is a, is an entity so it's not it's never going to be me personally uh i've seen other people use their themselves as beneficiaries but that's you know that land trusts are not asset protection if you're if you're looking for the asset protection you also need the underlying llc or limited partnership or s corp or whatever it is you have chosen to do i've also seen land trusts where the beneficiary was someone's ira or it was actually the IRA that owned the property, but they didn't want their name, they didn't want their IRA's name out there in the public record because they didn't want to be harassed with illegal letters from folks who were looking to them to get money. A question from Gerald in Chicago. Gerald says, I am a licensed real estate agent. My question is, how does a realtor who is wholesaling a deal assign the rights to the deal to their end buyer? I understand how a, the process works with a non-licensed principal, but not for a licensed one. I'm told that all a realtor needs to do is use the standard contract, close the deal on our own name, and then quit claim it to transfer the deal. That is not um, entirely correct, Gerald. I think some of what you're hearing here is from your broker as opposed to perhaps Illinois license law. First of all, the the way in which wholesaling a property differs if you are a licensed agent is that you must disclose on both sides of the transaction that you are a licensed agent and that you are not intending to create an agency agreement with the buyer or on the other side, the seller. Um, in other words, Mr. Seller, uh, before we get a negotiation, you need to understand that I am a licensed agent. I am acting as a principal in this transaction. I am therefore not representing you. I am representing myself as the buyer. And then the same thing when you sell the property, Mr. Buyer, I'm a licensed agent and I'm not representing you. I'm representing myself because I'm a principal in this transaction. And of course, have them sign the agency disclosure agreement just as you would in any situation. Uh, as to license agents using, quote, the board contract, you are always going to use that when you are dealing with a listed property. 
you are going to use it if your broker requires you to do so in transactions with uh, members of the public that are not represented by their own agents. You need to check into Illinois license law and see if that is actually a requirement of the law or whether it is a requirement of your broker. Because board contracts, a lot of language in board contracts just does not apply to a transaction that is not a listed transaction. So a lot of agents that I know throughout the country who are wholesaling properties are using a lawyer approved but not the board contract when they are dealing with a member of the public as opposed to dealing with um, a property that is listed. Uh, this business about closing the property in your own name and then quit claiming it to transfer the deal, yeah, you can do it that way. Does the Chicago board contract have a non-assignment agreement in it or something? Because if it doesn't, you can assign the agreement like everybody else does. Must we share our fee with a sponsoring broker? You need to talk to the broker about that. The uh, there's no there's no law that says an assignment fee on a contract needs to be shared with a broker. At the same time, your broker makes the rules for your employment agreement with that broker. So explain what you're doing. Explain that this is not a commission. This is not. I mean, there may be a commission involved, and of course you will split that. But uh, this is not a commission. This is a fee for the sale of a property if you've bought it, or for an assignment of the contract if you have not bought it. Ask him what he thinks of it. Strangely, about 80% of the brokers seem to seem to say, well, you know, that's that's your business. It's just like if you bought a property and sold it for profit a year later, I don't get a I don't get a fee like that. Of the 20% who do, well, you're gonna have to make a decision at that point. Do you want to set up your business that way, or do you want to find a more investor friendly broker? Because that is a um it's going to have a detrimental effect on your income. <laughs> let, me, let me say it that way. If you have to split things with your broker. Uh, let's see. We have time for about one more question. I was just handed a note that says that we are about 90 seconds out. So how do I find a 90 second question to answer? Uh, Jerome in Kernersville, North Carolina. Have you ever heard of a cost segregation study done on a duplex? If so, can you give any particulars? Have you ever done one on any of your properties? Any info you have on this subject would be helpful. Um, Jerome, you know, you, you kind of hit a nerve with me there because there is very little data of that sort available on small residential properties. If, if, you, if you're looking at apartment buildings or commercial properties, there's tons of commercial brokers and, uh, you know, there's whole, there's whole organizations that, that sit around and collect data like that and do studies. But because the small residential real estate world is so scattered, I mean, you know, a lot of us don't even belong to real estate investors associations, much less, uh, you know, some kind of like, big national professional organization that could do that kind of study. Uh, so long story short, no, Gerald, I have not seen such a thing. Um, it would be wonderful information to have, wouldn't it? It would be wonderful if we had a, a national organization that could put that together. But unfortunately, you're just going to have to go on your experience and that of your colleagues there in Kernersville. Ask them some questions and put the information together yourself. We're at the end of our program. You've been listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>